Okay. We'll dive in. That's our itinerary. Luke 24, verse 25. And he said to them, that being Jesus, Oh, foolish ones. I love how Jesus talks to us. Uh, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? and while he opened to us the scriptures. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, the truth be told, you don't talk to us in a condescending manner. You talk to us actually in a way that involves us in your epic story that you've been telling since long before any of us were even a glimmer and a glimmer and a glimmer of an eye and will far extend us, will go beyond us, but yet you, we also find ourselves wrapped up in it. Lord, I pray that um, we might do something that is both clear and succinct as possible today, but also uh, not reductionistic or uh, simplistic. And that is simply tell the whole story of what you're doing and being very clear to show our active invitation to participate in that story. Lord, let us not do uh, the truly crazy thing, which is to see what you're doing, see what um, you're doing, which is far bigger than us, far bigger than our Monday morning, far bigger than our 35-year career, uh, far bigger than our life, whatever that would be, however many years you would live on this earth. We can actually be a part of something that is eternal, that extends eternity past and extends on to eternity future. And so, Lord, let us not get too caught up in the smallness of a moment, in a hard day, in a busy schedule, to miss the huge force for the trees of the epic story that you're telling and inviting us to. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are three weeks into a series, and it is a mini-series on spiritual formation concerning how do we form ourselves through the Scriptures. And we've been doing just multiple of these series, dropping in on, hey, how do we form ourselves concerning prayer? How do we form ourselves concerning Sabbath and silence and solitude? And we're, uh, in the fall, we look to how do we form ourselves in concerning participating in justice and reconciliation? And as we look towards the scriptures, I kind of spoke to this last week, it's an interesting one because in a lot of us, we probably, that's the spiritual formation tool, technique, practicing the way of Jesus that we're most familiar with. Everyone is kind of familiar with reading the Bible in some way, shape, or form. And you probably are that way because, as I spoke to two weeks ago, we come from a Western worldview where we might primarily think of information as being the primary form of transformation, even though all of the studies that we show show that there's a big disconnect with that theory. That you can learn a lot, but then just not fail to live that into your life. I mean, you will probably all know something that you learn, something you know you should do, like eating healthier. You generally know, like, I should eat this, I shouldn't eat this. 
but there's a siren call late at night from that ice cream bowl. And it just has to manifest itself in what you've learned but are not practicing. And in a series on the scriptures and their spiritual formation in us, again, first week we looked on just like our general cultural moment as it comes to how do we understand truth and we're in a crisis of truth and, and how have we gotten to the point to how you as a Western American think the way that you think. And I kind of like did a whole thing where I'm like, here's your worldview. And I kind of displayed it upon you. And with a few people who might want to be like, no, I'm a unique individual. Truth be told, even that is a part of your world, like the worldview that we have. You are a unique individual like everybody else. And, um, and so there's that week. And then last week we talked into like, hey, if we're going to talk about the scriptures, we should at least talk to about like how we got them, like how they formed it. Like, do we even know if this is the actual words that were in them? And that was all last week. It's kind of tracking through the history of the formation of the Bible. And this week I want to tell the whole story because there's a lot of misconceptions as to what the Bible is. In fact, even that word, the Bible, is a word that the Bible never uses for itself. It's going to call itself the scriptures. This is what I'm going to more commonly refer to it as. So it's going to talk about the scriptures. And the scriptures, the problem with the Bible is the Bible gives us the image of a book. But the scriptures are actually a library, all concerning one epic story. It's not what I like to refer to as a way to discern God's will for your life or the magic eight ball formation of the Bible, which is like, I ask it a question, who should I marry? I shake it up and I turn to a page. Or like I look in the concordance back here and you're just like looking for a girl or guy's name. And like luckily I married a girl named Sharon, so I get like Rosa Sharon versus in Genesis. I'm like, okay, she's biblical, good. Checks out. Um, And yeah, it's the whole like, you know, what job do I take? What city do I move to? What college do I go to? All these things. And, And that's my main conception of what the Bible does for me. Or you get the, the Bible, it's an acronym, for basic instructions before leaving earth. If you have that bumper sticker, shame on you. And uh, someone's going to be out there in the parking lot, like, like leave, they like leave early and they're like, gosh. Um, and it views more of it as like, it's a book of rules. It's a book of... Like, how do I get God to like me and go to heaven before I die? Or you get the concept of, I mean, this is one that, like, I even come from, my background is in Crew Campus Crusade. It's a ministry on college campuses, and they have a resource in which they reduce uh, the scriptures. Again, it's not actually meant to replace the Bible. It's just trying to draw out one theme of the Bible salvation, personal salvation, namely, and they call this thing the four spiritual laws, the knowing God personally booklet, and it traces through one theme of how do you know God personally? Well, God loves you, first of all. He created you. He has a desire to have a plan for your life, and yet you have sinned and fallen short of his glory. You cannot be connected to God except for the bridging of the you know, cross, going across the two things of the canyon and everything, and you go across that canyon, and you accept Jesus into your life, and, and that's not a bad tool. But that is a way of conceiving the Bible is that it's primarily about personal salvation. Salvation is a theme of the Bible. It's even a major theme of the Bible. It's not the biggest theme of the Bible. 
Your personal salvation by far is not the biggest theme of the Bible. Again, not unimportant to Jesus, really important, but not the biggest theme. Probably not even the top three, maybe not even the top five. And then you kind of get, like, people say, like, well, that's too personal and individualistic. We need to think of it, like, more cosmic and more universal. So they get these four chapters of creation and fall, sin, fall of humanity, and then redemption, and then restoration, the recreation of all things. Maybe we're getting closer. But even that, you get... Creation and fall, which is Genesis 1, 2, 3. And then you skip to redemption, which is the Gospels in the New Testament. And you're like, what did we just, we like skipped over three-fourths of the Bible. So what's all that to, like, what does that have to do with anything? And of course, then there's just the view of like, they're just like a bunch of crazy sometimes offensive, most of the times irrelevant stories. I've given you a couple alternative views of the Bible. I think you need multiple. Not because, well, primarily because this is an ancient Jewish text. And the way the ancient Jewish thinkers saw truth is they saw it like a diamond. If you look at a diamond, you in order to kind of like focus on it, you have to look at one face. But that's not the whole diamond. You've got to rotate it and turn it and see another face. In fact, even rotating and turning it and seeing the light reflect out of it like brings up new facets of it. Maybe another way to picture this is a hologram. I don't know if you know how holograms work. I'm a pastor. I'm going to teach you about how holograms work. Um, holograms essentially are pixels, reflections of, of light to create an image. And every individual pixel of light is interconnected to every other pixel of light in the entire hologram. It's all one pixel that's just kind of bouncing around, refracting, and creating a whole complex image. And so if you touch any pixel, you're actually touching the whole thing. Somebody explained that once to me, and they said, that's, that's truth. Truth is holographic. It's multiple pixels. You touch one, the whole thing touches everything else. But you need them all to see the complexity of it. And so ways that, like, I've depicted this in, even in the course of the series. I've, I've quoted Larry Crabb, who writes the book 66 Love Letters, who talks about the sense of, like, it's 66 books reflecting God's love to a people in the continual revelation of himself. And that's true. That's good. But that's one pixel. Or I talked about a couple weeks ago, it's like J.J. Abrams' concept of a mystery box in which he's been interviewed saying, like, he's just fascinated by a story starting with a mystery box. And that's basically this idea that, like, a character just shows up and at their doorstep one day or, like, you know, they find in a bag or find in some old box of books, like some box, and they open it, and poof, all of a sudden they're thrown into this story that goes far beyond them in the past and will go far beyond them in the future. And they are just tossed in now as a character into an epic story that as far surpasses their life moment. And just by opening it, they, they entered into it. I can't close that box. And I said a couple weeks ago, what if I said this is a mystery box? Where you have 
narrative, poetry, prose, discourse, all throwing you into the midst of a story that goes from eternity past into eternity future, revealing a God to his people. And so again, it's not a book, it's a library of books. And that I mean, it's got multiple ways of telling the story, as I just said, it has narrative. Narrative is story. And one thing that we've learned through a lot of study in the modern era is that your brain is hardwired to receive information through story and retain it through story. You can be told something but if you put it into a narrative, a story with characters, plot, setting, a, a beginning, middle, and end with a hero and a journey and an epic fall and rise and, and then a climax and then a resolution, you will hold on to that story far longer than any individual nugget. And so 43% of what you hold in your hands is told through narrative story. Because God apparently knew that about us when he made us. And you got 33% of it, one-third, is poetry. Which a lot of you don't read a lot of poetry. But ultimately it's told, it, it just finds moments it can't explain through story, but it has to use image and awaken your imagination to tell you something you didn't know or can't even express through words, but just have to do it through, through contrasting images and, and metaphors and ideas and, and something that, that builds upon something. It's almost like something too big for words is when you have to use poetry. Something far too big for a narrative. And then you get prose discourse. And of course, that can just be like Paul and Romans just walking you through. Here's the gospel and here's the implications and here's what you should do. And most of you live your life in prose discourse. That's the epistles. And you're just like, I live my life there because it's really clear. It's really straightforward. I can get that fairly tangibly. Yes, I might not get everything about it, but I can generally understand what's going on. But again, that's only 20, what do I got? 24%. And those things actually, those, all those narrative, poetry, prose discourse, they're not just like defined by a book. I mean, yes, the Psalms are pretty much all poetry. But Exodus, a good chunk of it is narrative. And then you get Exodus 15, which is the Song of Moses, which is a poetic telling of Exodus 14 when they cross the Red Sea and everything that's happened from the people of God from the beginning of them until that moment. And you're like, you just told us a story, but it's like, you, it's like they tell you that story and now we're going to tell you that poetically so that you can catch it with details and colors and notes to the symphony that you wouldn't have caught just in the narrative. And then, of course, the back half of Exodus is a lot of uh, prose discourse. It's going through like Law, or even a better translation, is God's teaching. His teaching of what it is to be human. What does it look like to be human and interact with reality the way that I made you to? And I'm going to teach you that through, through law. Or teaching. Discourse. And that's all in one book. And, and again, all books are kind of all divvied up. They, none of them really all have one. Most of them all have multiple of these forms. But ultimately what you need to know is that this library of books all interconnect and are circling around an epic story with tons of characters and tons of twists and turns and ups and downs 
and ins and outs, but ultimately are a part of the story we find ourselves in. And so the problem with the Bible is like it's long enough that most of you are not just going to sit down and read it beginning to end. I know people have done that, like take like three days and they do nothing but like wake up and like, you know, drink smoothies as they read the entire Bible. And that's a way to go about it. And that's really good because you do, there's something about getting the whole narrative all together. But even then, you're jumping in and out of, like, you're going chronologically. You're going all over the place. I mean, or you may be like, well, I can do a chronological read-through plan. Well, yeah, but that's chronologically to kind of like how it fits in order. Sometimes even that's not exactly the way that the, the Hebrews conceived of their Bible. They have a much different order than we have that doesn't even fit the chronological order. They put it more by theme or topic or just ways that it was meant to shape you. I don't think any of them are any better or worse. They're just all different ways. But most of you are going to read it a little section at a time. Just a portion, a page, a chapter, a couple chapters. And so I want you, upon leaving here, to have the ability to open it up in any book, in any form of literature, any form of that library, and understand the story it's trying to communicate and approximately where it is in the timeline. Or if, again, timeline is a wrong word. It's not chronological. Where it is in the development of that tapestry, that mural. And so, small task is not this one. And uh, I sometimes will preach like over an hour on a couple verses. Today, my text is the entire Bible. Here we go. Uh, Genesis 1. You get the story beginning with God who creates all things. But here's what Genesis 1 is doing versus not doing. Genesis 1, namely, is not asking one question. How did God create the world? It's not concerned with asking that question, and it's very not concerned with answering it. It's very concerned with two other questions. Who created the world, and why did they create it? Because if I want to know something about you, I can talk to you. I can have a conversation with you. Here's another thing I can do. I can look at what you make. If I say, I give you like a couple pages, I'm like, write me a short story. Or if I give you like a page, a blank page, and like draw something or, or write something or do something, create something. I could maybe learn some things that you can't even articulate about yourself by what you create. And so ultimately... People always want to get wrapped up in Genesis 1 of like, well, is it a literal week or is it like, you know, thousands of years or whatever? Well, the word that they use here is a little word for a day, so it must be a literal week. Well, yes, but it's more like it goes back and forth. Here's ultimately where I'm going to accept a bunch of different views on that because it's not concerned with answering the how. It's concerned with answering the who and why. And so Genesis 1 reads like a poem. It is a poem. And it's pulling on imagery and pulling on things. Some of them are literal, maybe. Some of them are not literal, maybe. Who's to say which is which? I don't know. But regardless, it's trying to tell you this epic story about a God who takes darkness and develops light out of it. Who takes formlessness and develops it into order. Who takes chaos and develops it into beauty. I mean, he doesn't just start with neutral, like, 
blank nothingness. Like there is a blanking nothingness, but even after like he creates like the light, eventually, like immediately it says then like there's like this formless watery substance. And water to the Israelites, to the Hebrews, I've said this recently, but I just always have to point this out. Water, ocean, that was where all danger lived for them. I mean, they just saw oceans and water and waves as just the embodiment of danger and chaos and darkness. And so when it says that God's hovering over these waters, it's saying very something specific. He's not taking a neutral thing. He's taking something that's prone to chaotic formlessness and creating order, beauty, and light. Because that's the kind of God he is. He takes brokenness. He takes death, destruction, and chaos and creates something wonderful. And so we get that, and then we move into this intimate moment of him creating humanity. Because him creating the world is all, like, not intimate. It's all just speaking, and bam, there it is. He's just speaking light and speaking, you know, all of the worlds and creations. Again, is this literally how it goes down, or is this figuratively how it goes down? Uh, we don't really, or the Bible's not really concerned with telling us. But he's, like, just saying more of, like, this, like, less intimate. I speak, and there it is. And all of a sudden, he gets to humanity, and it zooms in on this moment where he, God takes dirt and forms it. And he forms it with his hands, and he gets his fingerprints on it, and he touches it. It's tactile. He breathes life into the man. It's meant to picture a kiss more than anything else. It's the breath of life, an intimate moment of him passing his life force into this. And then you get like a second tell, you get two tellings of the creation of humanity, which some people get all freaked out. Like there's two tellings of the creation of humanity. And I remember my wife in college, like was in a Bible class. They're like, is Genesis one telling of the creation of humanity or Genesis two, the accurate one. Here's the reality of Hebrew scripture. It's all meant to tell you something in multiple ways to get different ideas. That's how they told stories. They told you a story where they would take the, or, the details and they wouldn't put them in the order of chronology. They put them in an order which told them, they told you what they wanted you to learn from that. And then they'd retell it, maybe in a poetic form with different imagery or maybe in a different way of rearranging the details so that it would tell you something new, both true, both pixels in the hologram or facets of the diamond, but different. You need them all to see the complexity of the whole. And so it retells this picture of humanity and everything is good, but this is very good. And then he goes on from that moment of humanity and he puts his image into humanity, which there's a lot you can be said about what the imago Dei, that's the Latin term, image of God, is in humanity. But let me make it really simple. The most simple way to see the image of God is this. When somebody rules over a territory, when they have dominion over it, and they are not seen in that portion of the territory. Take the Roman Empire, for example. The sun at one point never set on the Roman Empire because the land stretched around the entire globe. And so the Caesar was only in Rome. He wasn't seen everywhere, but his presence, his rule was everywhere. And so how they would solve that is every place that they conquered and made a part of their empire... They would erect an image of the ruler. Both, this is his dominion, and this is what he's like. God creates a territory, and he puts his people in a small part of it, and he says, I want you to expand over this whole thing. And as you do, you're going to erect the image of me, showing my dominion 
and what I'm like, except you're not going to make a statue. You're my image. When people look at you, they're going to learn what I'm like. Because you're going to be a people that as you expand my kingdom around the globe, it's not going to be like I, we conquer you and now you have to pay our taxes and we make you our slaves. You're going to serve those who you come into contact with. You're going to lay your life down for others. You're going to be unified with each other in a way that loves each other. I mean, it's all meant to come out of that first interaction of humanity, man and woman. That's why in my wedding outline, no matter when you get married, this will probably be in your wedding. And it's not even original to me. Somebody said it, and like, that's good. Can't write it better. I'm taking that. And it ultimately is this sense where it says, hey, husband, when you serve your wife like your own body serves itself by breathing, when you see her as you, when you honor her like you would yourself, people see what God is like. They see his image. You are the imago Dei on earth, ruling as he does in heaven. Hey, wife, when you love and care for your husband, when you serve him and are unified with him, you're connected and you guys connect with each other in a way that a head and a body connect. There's no separateness. You guys are just effortlessly connected in with one another. When you come along and you follow along into that and you are in the flow of all that and there's a beauty to it, you image God. You rule on this world like he does in heaven. And so he puts his image into us. And he says, hey, fill this whole earth and subdue it. Multiply. Make my image everywhere you go. And then the opposer enters the story. And I specifically call him the opposer because he's never given a name as if to say he's a character that doesn't deserve one. I know there's people that are going to point to a story in Kings about Lucifer, the morning star who falls from grace. That's an interpretive leap. I can't ultimately say, and I'm actually of the opinion that that's a human king who is prideful and is told in a cosmic way of like God is removing his presence because a prideful humanity who goes their own way is removed from the presence of God. They fall from grace. I think that's actually a story about us. But you get this figure that shows up all throughout the scriptures. He's called the Satan, which is Hasatan, the opposer. He's called the devil. He's called the liar, the tempter, the thief. And here he's depicted as a snake. Is he a literal talking snake? No. I mean, some people are like, well, it's not like Adam and Eve actually believed there was talking snakes in the world. Well, they were walking with God in the cool of the day. Like, they had a different way of viewing the world and seeing things as we did. But at the same time, there's a way to say that there's a lot of evidence to say this is just how ancient Hebrews would write literature. They depict a snake, but they weren't actually thinking a snake. They were just trying to say very clearly who this is. This is the person, this is the opposer of humanity. Because snakes always oppose humanity. And I'm not just like saying that like as a joke. Actually, in the book Human Universals, or believe it's just Human Universals, Universals, it's a study that has studied all cultures that they can find, all oral and written cultures. And they found a lot of things that are uniform. Flowers, always seen as pretty. There's no one to be like, I hate flowers, those are ugly. No one's doing that. 
we're always afraid of death and outsiders. Like we have this like communalness to us. Like there's all humanities, all cultures always do this. Interestingly enough, all cultures have seen the snake as evil. All cultures in some way. And no one's been like, you know what? It's actually, the scales are cuddly. Like no one's doing that because they just, ultimately there's something in our design that all cultures have always seen there to be some enmity between us and the snake. And so this could be the potential. They're just being like, hey, you know what this guy is like? You know who this figure is like? It's like one who opposes us like the asp or the adder or the cobra or the rattlesnake. And so he enters in and he inceptions an idea. Did God really say, don't eat of this tree? Because in the first like little bit where you got humanity walking in the cool of the garden, all things the way they were meant to be, God says, hey, you live in a world of yes. And let me tell you one thing that I want to do for you. I want to be the one who defines good and evil for you. I want you to trust me in that. You were not made to be able to define good and evil for yourself. And so in the story, whether we literally play out this way or regardless how it, goes, uh, how it plays out, is the opposer inserts the idea. Did he really say you're not to define good and evil for yourself? And this point pictured as this tree and this fruit. Go ahead, eat the fruit. You can define good and evil for yourself. And when humanity enters into that realm, we become one who, yes, we define good and evil for ourselves individually. I want to do what I want to do. Why? Because I want to do it. Well, what if it hurts somebody else? Not my problem. Or we do it more communally, and it's seen as more noble. I want to protect my family. And I'm, I'm thinking of others, right? But to the expense of that family. I want to, to protect my group, my identity, my tribe, at the expense of that one. And so Adam and Eve immediately split apart. He did it, she did it. There's division. There's shame. There's covering from each other. We no longer are in unity and oneness, following each other uniquely and connectedly. We are now pushing apart and pointing fingers, and then one generation later, you get death and murder. Well, God just seems to favor him a little bit more, and so instead of wrestling with that or even like asking God what's going on, I'm going to kill him because he's in the way of what I want. A couple generations later, you get Lamech, who is the great-great-grandson of Cain, the killer of Abel. And he says, hey, my great-great-grandfather Cain was avenged sevenfold, but I'm avenged seventy-sevenfold, which means if you strike me, I kill you. If you look at me wrong, I kill you. He takes multiple wives. This is the first time you see it. It's like not just about oneness and this intimacy. It's about me just collecting women and using my power, my physical dominance to extort those who I dominate over. It's no longer this picture of love and service and sacrifice and care and unity. And God eventually like, looks at this and be like, you have not only not fulfilled a subduing the earth and filling it with my image, you've subdued the earth and filled it with darkness, filled it with chaos, filled it with disorder. If God has the propensity to take that is dark, disordered, and chaotic and make it into light and order and beauty, we have the propensity to do the opposite. And then 
God just like, I, I grieve that I even made this. Hard reset. You did it once, another go at it. And so through the waters of the flood come one man, Noah, who is names means rest. Will he give us rest? And Noah, a righteous man before God, he and his family start the spiral again right after getting out of the ark. And then you get the Tower of Babel, which is basically all humans banding together to say, hey, we're going to use our creative power to defy God, to rise up to him and to rise up to his level or to make him come down to us by building this tower and say, you come down on our terms. And God looks at this and be like, man, you guys have a lot of power in you. I've given you creativity. I've given you beauty. I've given you all these things. You're using it to make stuff that's going to destroy you. So the spiral keeps happening again. We start over, the spiral happens again. You keep having the propensity to take what is beautiful, light, and ordering, and make it disordering, make it death, make it destruction, make it dark, make it chaos. So God shows up to a man. Just one guy. And he says, this guy's name is Abram. This guy's just out worshiping pagan gods with his people. And he grabs him and he says, hey, Abram, I'm going to, through you, bless the whole world. I'm going to bless you. And through your blessing, it's going to bless a world that's going to bless her. I mean, it says blessed five times. And it's tried to drive home this point. It's trying to connect to Genesis 1, this blessing where God's blessing everything and everything's blessed and we're all blessed, hashtag blessed. And all of a sudden now it connects into this moment where he's saying, I'm going to bless you. And through you, I'm going to bless everybody. And then he says, I'm going to give you an improbable family. You're way past childbearing years. And I'm going to give you more descendants than you could count into the stars of the sky. He makes a covenant with him. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. And out of that covenant, Abram becomes Abraham, the father of many. And he promptly screws everything up multiple times. I mean, he just, like, goes and he gets freaked out when God, like, brings him to a place where there's a king who's a little powerful. And instead of trusting God, he says, here, just take my wife and make her your whore. And, uh, you know, tough to come back from. Um, But he does, and then he does it again. And then you're like, okay, all right, you know, like, clearly we're not getting the whole unified and trust me and, like, calm the heck down. And... Uh, then he has Isaac, who is the son of the promise. Like, you know, they're they're, they're 90s, and all of a sudden they bear the son. And Isaac, learning well from his dad and generational sin is a real thing, does the exact same thing with his wife in the exact same place, the exact same king even. It's a real story to just show there's something that keeps happening again and again. The hard reset and the spiral continues. And it goes on to Jacob who was never actually meant to be the one who the covenant passed through is for the firstborn son, but he cheats and lies to his brother to become the one who the covenant passes through. And God says, fine, I'm going to take you as the cheater and liar who cheated your way into the covenant. I'm actually going to redeem your story and I'm going to make you a part of it. And just get this, I mean, then he has 12 sons and they become the 12, 12 sons of, I mean, his name becomes Israel. Whole story we don't have time for. Either way, his name's changed to Israel. They become the 12 sons of Israel, which become the 12 tribes of Israel, becomes the nation of Israel. 
And that's just like, even those 12 sons are like backbiting each other and selling each other into slavery, you know, real cool history to come out of. And, and out of that, then you even get at the end of Genesis, Genesis 50, I forget the verse number, but it's one verse that like summarizes the whole book and the story up till now, where Joseph, who is one of those brothers who got sold into slavery by his, uh, by his brothers, but even by being sold into slavery, actually gets put into a position to save them and the whole known world by ruling over the most powerful nation and helping distribute their food evenly. And so he says to them, hey, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. That summarizes the whole story up until this point. You have the propensity to turn dark, and God takes even your very efforts to make this dark and creates a tapestry of beauty with it. And so from then on, you're like, wow, we're just in Genesis, Ken. We've got to speed this up. Okay, we will. And so we get into Exodus, and Exodus is the story of how the people that God saves through Joseph by getting them to Egypt all of a sudden get enslaved. And as they get enslaved, God comes and he says, through my signs and wonders, I'm going to prove that I'm going to keep my promise to the forefathers. I'm going to keep everything that I said. I'm going to pull you out of slavery. I'm going to bring you to my promised land. And as I do that, we're going to have the Sinai moment where I'm going to give you again my teaching, how it is to be human. I'm going to give you a culture. You're a slave people. You haven't had your own culture in over 400 years. You have no idea what it is to be your own people. So here's a culture. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to show you what it is to be human. And as you step into this, they even see it. And they're like, wow, you've given us all these signs and wonders. Uh, you're up here and you're like mentoring us and teaching us how wonderful. We will do everything that you say we should do. And God in that moment is just like, oh, if you had but a heart. Which is like, don't be a buzzkill, man. This is the last day of camp. They all committed their life to Jesus. And you're just like being like, it's going to go bad. You're going to like give this in a couple weeks. You're like, don't tell us that now. But he's like, hey, I designed you. I made you. I know how it's going to go. You don't have the heart to define good and evil and be able to do this. And so you get that generation walking away, and they, God says, hey, you're, all you're going to die off before entering into my, my land, the, the land I promise you, your kids will get to. And before they do, Moses rereads the law, the second law, the Deuto law in Deuteronomy. As he reads the second law, the second telling of everything again, and the story up to this point, he recasts it for them. They enter the promised land, but they continue to take on the gods of foreign idols, distort the poor, the orphan, the widow, the foreigner. And out of that propensity to do that, God, even in his teaching, in his law, he gives them a system, a sacrificial system, priests. And that whole sacrificial system, he basically says, like, hey, I want you to, when you fail to keep covenant, you need to realize you have created death and destruction. So you need to actually create death by killing a blameless animal, a perfect, spotless, blameless animal. Because, yes, there's something, A, to know, like, you've created that death. You need to see it. You need to, it needs to come at your hands. You need to sprinkle it on you. But also there's something powerful about that life force, that blood that gave life to something, now sprinkled upon you, sacrificed on your behalf, actually has a power to, I will now cleanse you in that. That is cleansing you. And so they keep doing that. They keep going through this system. And meanwhile, they also then decide to ask for a king. 
They're like, hey, we're on our own people now. We're in this promised land. We had judges for a while, but they all kind of like did a lot of weird stuff. And uh, we didn't really like that system. And everybody else has a king to lead them through battle. And so when God says, no, I want you to trust me. I'll lead you in battle. I'll lead you. I'll take care of you. They say like, well, we just would like to have a tangible king. He says, no, you don't, have, you don't have the capacity to define good and evil for yourself well. If you put one person up to do that, it's going to go really bad. But they demand it. And so God, in either his passive wrath or his active wrath or whichever it is, he relents and he gives them a king. A grace and a wrath at the same time. It's Saul who looks the part. He's tall, he's handsome, he's well accomplished in battle but he's wicked and he goes after foreign gods and he leads the people there and then you get this whole just ups and downs of mainly bad kings and occasionally pretty good kings with some really dark moments and of course the best is David and out of David there's like this promise of like hey I'm going to show you what a pretty good king looks like so you can know that someday I'm going to give you an even better king and David, you get this moment. I mean, he just, he's a man after God's own heart, and he leads the people, and he creates great unity and great peace, and all the enemies of God are thwarted, and like, there's just this sense of like David has brought and established a kingdom of God. But he sees Bathsheba. There was the seeing of the fruit, seeing it's good, seeing it was to be desired. There was a seeing of Bathsheba, seeing it was good, seeing it was to be desired. A taking it. Well, she's got a husband. Turns out it's your best friend. Well, let's kill him. Some major things that go into David's story that he never fully recovers from. And even in the best of kings, God still says, no, I'm going to bring for you a real king that will bring my real kingdom. In fact, let's call him the anointed king, the Messiah. He's coming. And you start picking up on who this Messiah is in the prophets. The prophets are really weird to read because they're just like all over the place and it feels like the same chapters going over and over again with different poetic imagery. And that's because somebody once explained to me, when you read the prophets, don't think of prose discourse, think of jazz. How does jazz function? One instrument plays a theme and then another section of the band picks up that theme and replays it but then takes it somewhere new. And then another section replays that new theme and then subverts it, plays it like in an opposing way. And then another section takes that and plays the new subverted theme and then re-inverts it and then takes it somewhere altogether and then just keeps bouncing all around to completely explore a theme. And they say, when you read the prophets, when you read Isaiah, just think of the jazz music. They're just like these same four themes of we have a God who has kept a covenant to us, but we continue to whore ourselves out to other gods, to, to becoming like other nations like he ever has become, distorting the poor, the widow, the, the orphan, the foreigner. We continually are getting drunk off of wine. Our leaders are just sitting there and like guzzling down their own pleasure while the orphan burns. And as we continue to lament over this, just prophet after prophet comes and tells the story and sometimes like tells it in a way like Isaiah just walking naked for three years saying God's going to send us into exile and it's going to be as shameful as this. And then God eventually does send them to exile. Their temple's destroyed. And in the exile, 
they form together poetry, which gets formed together in the Psalms. And they're mainly like writings of David, who longed for a temple where God's presence would be because he lived before the temple existed. And now they're on the other side where they've been exiled. They're far away. The temple's been destroyed. And they're like longing like David was on the other side, but they're longing for the, to be restored into God's presence. And there's this downfall, but then there's this hope in the Psalms that are pushing you forward. I mean, the whole book is arranged in a way that's meant to take you through both the life of David and the exile and the hope of a future. And you're meant to pray these along, learn to hope and see God's story played into reality. And then you get the end of the Hebrew text, which is actually Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles. We put that in the middle, in a really weird point. Like after you read First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, you read First and Second Chronicles, which is like all the same stories again. You're like, what? what I, this is I'm taking crazy pills. Like this is Groundhog's Day. What, what are we doing right now? It's because that was actually never meant to be next to each other. Chronicles is at the end, and actually starts with Adam and Eve, and retells the whole story up until now, and then ends. In Second Chronicles, at a break-off sentence, it says, and then he went up. And it doesn't finish the sentence because it's a story searching for an ending. It doesn't conclude. You're meant to, like, almost feel the dissonance of when you, like, play every note of a song and cut off the last song like, happy birthday to... Oh, you know, like, you're just like, okay. Like, you know, like, it just breaks in your mind and freaks you out because you want that to conclude. And Chronicles just says, no conclusion. Wait. And years and years and years and years later, the music picks up again. And a peasant carpenter rabbi who starts walking around and saying, hey, all these themes and the prophets and in the sacrificial system and in the stories, they all point to me. And he starts teaching a whole new way to be human. He says, like, hey, I, I want you to come and give of your own rights, to let your life down. I want you to love others more than you love yourself. I want to show you what it's like to be there in that garden, to be the image you were meant to be. Matthew starts with a genealogy, which most of you skip because it's a genealogy. But even in that genealogy, it's connecting David, this king, down his line to his kingly line, eventually became part of it a peasant line. But out of this peasant line, they say, hey, this is the true kingly line. This is a king. This is a potential Messiah line that's being picked up here. And that genealogy, the word for genealogy is similar to the word Genesis. It's actually meant to be like, hey, this is a whole new Genesis. This is a whole new day. This new kingly line and this one man who then not only just talks about peace and harmony and joy and restoration of all things and freeing captives, he does it. He starts like healing people. And he starts coming to people and bringing them out of bondage, whether it be sin or demonic or actual like opening of cell doors. And 
he starts restoring life and vitality and even takes a few people that are dead and says, this isn't the way it's meant to be and it's not how it's going today. And one day, death will die. Just to prove it, let me show you a little foretaste. Problem is, is he didn't really look like a Messiah that was supposed to lead everybody in battle and kill all the enemies. In fact, he especially didn't look like that the moment he gets killed. And everyone's like, well, if that was the Messiah, then he didn't do, then God didn't hold on the promise. But in his death, not only does he verify his teaching by laying down his life for those who would persecute him. He's also declared a king over his cross, though, ironically, it states, here's the king of the Jews, and he was. He also fulfills the sacrificial system, thousands and thousands upon hundreds of thousands of slain lambs to expouse out the stain of sin. And the night before, he says, hey, I want you to show you how my blood is the real Passover lamb as John called him, the the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he did bleed. He was sacrificed for our sin. And he creates a way through death that actually becomes the doorway to life. Even his death becomes a doorway to his life resurrected. And he says, hey, you too will pass through death, but you will in that doorway become out the other side new life and life to the full. And even now, when you participate with me by like being baptized, being buried, and rising again, you participate in my spirit. Not just like, oh, my inner spirit that you just got to think and believe on, but my actual spirit, the power that actually rose me from the dead, is going to be in you. To become formed into my image and to declare and make disciples of this message all over the world. And they try doing that. And it's really hard. And they have all these problems and things where they get things wrong or things go bad. And so all the apostles, primarily Paul and Peter and others, like write letters to be like, hey, this is where you kind of got off on that. But like here, shift more towards this. This is how the resurrection is actually like, this is how you should see it. And out of that, here's how you can live and be one with one another and loving to one another and caring for those and praying for the emperor who's persecuting you and laying down your life for them. And, and, and just don't give up. Keep going. I exhort you to hold on to the way of life because this is the way of life. And, and even those who are going to get martyred, and some of you are going to get martyred, man, even Revelation is going to say that's actually going to be a doorway to the vindication. The kingdom is going to come through your death even just like it came through his. And then it ends with a really unique book for the New Testament, but not a unique book at all for the whole library of the book of Revelation. It's a prophecy. We had a lot of them. Now we have one that has been fulfilled in a certain way, but it's still waiting its full fulfillment. Where John, whether it's the same as the apostle or if it's a different guy who's the revelator, either way, John sees a this whole kingdom that Jesus talked about. Hey, my kingdom's here, and I'm going to have you take it out and expand it over the whole world. will someday be here in its fullness. 
it's like the image I made before as when God made the world and the kingdom of God and the kingdom of humanity completely overlapped. When sin enters the world, they split apart. And the kingdom of God and the kingdom of humanity can't touch, they can't connect. Death enters in because the life source is gone. And Jesus comes and through his death and resurrection re-overlaps just so slightly the circles again. And he says, hey, now through you, who you are now living in that overlap, are going to continue to expand the circles, but someday they are going to fully overlap again. And all knees will bow before the throne of a God who made loves and designed them to live in a way of flourishing. And the city, not torching this place and going on to club heaven, heaven comes down to earth and God's throne room becomes here. And we now experience life and life to the full and praise his name forevermore as we enjoy the beauty of what he meant to be, the unity of us together, the unity to our God, the worship and the enjoyment and the pleasure of living life the way it was meant to be. I always say like to people, like, I got to travel a little bit in college. Pastoring is not a role that gives you a, a lot of ex- extra funds to travel. I don't care. I'll travel with the new heavens and new earth. It'll be way better than the way that you fly currently. And because it's not torching this place, it's coming into the kingdoms overlapping again. So where are we in the story right now? We're in Act 5. As N.T. Wright, one scholar, put it, he said he saw this as, one, as five acts. There's the act of creation. Is that, I should go this way for you. Uh, the act of creation. We have the act of the fall. The act of Israel, which is a really big part of the Old Testament, pretty much the majority of it. God's choosing to mentor and disciple one people. Hey, not everybody could do it. They kept falling, so I'm just going to disciple and shape and mold you, and you decisively run away from me and whore out after other gods. Then the, uh, the act of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, and the act of the church. Interestingly enough, the only thing we have in our scriptures about the act of the church is the first scene, Acts, and the last scene, Revelation. And we are in between those two scenes. And so what are we to do? We are to practice the way of Jesus, forming ourselves into his image, And out of the life that we experience through his life-giving spirit, we disciple others. Not into confessing they believe, but into following after him. Becoming other image bearers. Filling the world. Subduing it. Proclaiming the image of a God who made us, created us, designed us, loves us, and has given us a way to be human again in relationship to him. One way you form yourself in this is immersing yourself and forming yourself in the story. Through poetry, which opens up your imagination, through prose and discourse, which helps sometimes be like, okay, I just need to like re- focus on that truth. Through narrative, which just like helps you like familiarize with these characters and these plots and these settings that just like get in your mind at another level. And forming yourself, not getting information, but using this for formation. Another way that we form ourselves weekly is through the act of communion. Coming forward, taking the bread, 
at one point was meant to represent the Passover land to them, the God passing over them as the death angel that would kill all the firstborns in Egypt. And Jesus says, hey, this bread is actually me. It's my body that's going to be broken, that's going to pass death over you. And this cup, this wine in the cup, is my blood. To be poured out to cleanse all people from sin and death and enter them into a kingdom that they'll be a part of bearing my image in. And so when you're ready, I invite you, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, to come forward. Take of the bread, tear it off and dip in the cup, a gluten-free station up in the front. Let's pray. Father God, again, I pray that you would continually lift our eyes from a moment of a fight, of a bad job, an unfortunate place that we're at in the world right now, or maybe a place that we really love. We're just like, summer, life is good, vacation starts soon. Maybe it's here. But I pray that you would let us live in those moments, let us live in our vocations, our marriages, but our, our singleness, our, our, our relationships, our, our ups and downs, our days. But let us lift our eyes regularly through all these scriptures, this library telling this epic story to form ourselves who desire, who meditate, who commit to our minds what you're doing in the world, what you're doing in all of eternity, and reminding us the hope we have in you when things are dark, the faith we hold on to like our brothers and sisters have far before us and will far after us. Remind us of how we are bearing your image in this whole world, in this whole universe, until your kingdom comes in its fullness. And come, Lord Jesus, soon. In Jesus' name, amen.